makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Tu wastelo chante waste na page usapielo leon kipiki he wastelo oyate hona upi ohola oskati we chuni greetings good, good day and welcome my relatives i shake your hands with good feelings in my heart and the whole world is a beautiful day today it's a good day actually for all of us to be here and what a what a time huh it's let the people hear your voice respectfully celebrate life this is first voices radio i send you greetings and strength from the east gate of turtle island where the sun and the water touched earth at once. I'm your host, Teokasen Ghost Horse. And this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 28th year broadcasting. And Liz Hill is First Voices Radio's producer. And you can hear us now on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, and as well as looking at our archives, firstvoicesindigenousradio.org. And you can hear us internationally at Savvy. Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. Our first guest, our first guest is, uh, I would say, an ally. And I like to refer to this as an ally because it has a different meaning than just being a friend. And it means uh, we'll be talking with Max, who, uh, Max Wilbert, excuse me, who is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide, a third-generation dissident. Max grew up on the Duwamish land in post WTO Seattle. He's author of a few books, Bright Green Lies and How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. It's published by Monkfish in, in 
2021, I guess that's next year, and I'm sure, Max, you'll uh, correct me on that. Your essays have been published in Earth Island Journal, Counterpunch, and Dissident Voice, and have been translated into several languages. And so Max has been doing this for the last 20 years, political work, and has been involved in fighting both Canadian and Utah stars, tar stands and sands in uh, resisting industrial-scale water extraction and deforestation in Nevada, in, in advocating for the last remaining wild buffalo in Yellowstone, in solidarity work with indigenous communities in British Columbia and in campaigns against sexual violence. I'd like to welcome you, Max, to First Voices Radio. It's good to speak with you today. Good morning. Good morning, Kyoko-san. It's really a blessing to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and, and information that, that I have about you, I wanted to see because I, I was like, well, this guy has been several places, but he speaks with uh, something of a different, I'd say, heart or core of what the environment, if we could take that word apart, what it means to be more natural to feeling, and I, I would say by reading what you have written and uh, actually referred to is that the earth is a mainstay in all of us. Some of us see it different, but I think anyone who is actually looking to the earth and to protect the earth is an ally. And that's what I mean by an ally. So Max, um, when you talk about resistance and resistance in that way of being a dissident, when did it all start for you? And when did the wake up call come to you rather than just 20 years ago it seems to be that mm. it had to start from birth sometime but that that's your thoughts uh, let me know yeah thank you for the great question i think it really began honestly with the macaw territory uh I, you know as i said i grew up in seattle duwamish territory but i was lucky enough to have a family that would bring me out to the coast of what's now called washington state but what you know historically is macaw lands out on the uh, open ocean beaches there. And, uh, you know, I've, I've met and built a couple of relationships with Macaw people over the years, but starting from when I was a little kid, I was spending time hanging out on these wild ocean beaches and spending time building relationship with that land. And, you know, I always was contrasting that experience with growing up in the city, you know, and experiencing the pollution and seeing all the poverty and, you know, going through downtown Seattle and seeing all the homelessness and the giant skyscrapers and the, the huge amounts of wealth being, uh, you know, created or stolen. And contrasting that with, you know, being out on the beach and uh, spending time sitting around a campfire with my family and, and knowing that the Macaw people had sat around campfires with their families on that beach for thousands and thousands and thousands of years until they were forced, you know, basically through a more or less military force to, uh, to, to stop and, you know, forced to move to the reservation at Nia Bay and forced to start sending their kids to schools and boarding schools. And, and so that, I think that contrast was sort of working on me from a very young age, just, just being out on the land and having the opportunity to learn some of the history really started that process, uh, you know, before I was even conscious of it. So when you talk about um, moving on to the uh, Buffalo Field campaign and you as a campaigner, what did it 
mean to you once you were involved with protecting the Buffalo Inn, that so-called only land that's left wild in the the northern uh, the northern uh, continent called Turtle Island? What what goes through your mind when you're walking out into that wild? It's how it's supposed to be everywhere from east coast to west coast. It's pretty stunning for those who haven't been there. I've I've been lucky enough to travel uh, to the Yellowstone area a few times now and do some volunteering and work with the Buffalo Field Campaign. And for those who haven't been there, just the sense of of vitality in the land there is incredible. You know, I think those of us who grow up in this modern era, we barely even know what we're missing because you know, so much has been lost in terms of the life around us. You know, I'm I'm lucky enough to live in a, a rural area. I live in Oregon now, and uh, I live in a rural area not too far from a city, and so I'm lucky there's wildlife around. I'm actually walking outside right now, and the birds are singing, and there's deer to my right and deer to my left, actually. Um, but uh, when you go to a place like Yellowstone and you see herds of bighorn sheep and elk and deer and coyotes and wolves on the far hillside and grizzly bears and then the herds of buffalo, you start to realize how much has been lost and how we're living in this state of impoverishment. You know, our 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 relations, our kin, our, you know, brothers and sisters of the, the non human variety are missing. <laughs> you know, they've been they've been largely destroyed and taken away and exploited brutally and and i don't think most of us you know walk around in recognition of that fact on a daily basis and really feeling that that loss and so when you come into the presence of that much life that you know is so different from you is so distinct from us and lives in such a different way and yet at the same time is so similar to us you know you watch the buffalo families care for each other and you know, take care of the young and protect each other and teach, you know, the good food and the good migration routes. And, uh, you know, they're, they're so similar to us because we are related. Um, and, and that just fills a hole that I think we all have at some level and, uh, that that's empty. Spoken very well. Thank you, Max, for that. Um, when you talk about this loss of consciousness and we're not aware um, I, people want to go back. Where did, where did we disconnect ourselves? Where, what time in man's history, I'll put it that way, um, had did we lose contact with nature so that, and in my words now, is that why are we always trying to connect? Because I do know as a Native person there are humans, if indeed indigenous peoples, that are still related and don't need or have the need to connect because that consciousness is always there as you felt mm. as you walked out into the so-called wild of Yellowstone. Where, where, what do you think about that loss of consciousness? And, and just to fill it in even more is that one thing ingredient, ingredient that is missing to me that something jumped out and said, well, there should be a native person, an indigenous person in that wild mm. somewhere mm. out there, you know? So absolutely. What, yeah. What do you think about this? Yeah, one of the keystone species is missing, you know, to use the, the sort of uh, dry language of science. 
you know, one of the keystone species, human beings is missing from that relationship and that community, um, you know, as is the case across, you know, most of this continent. But yeah, I, I, I wonder about that question all the time. And I don't know that any of us really know exactly. I don't know that it's possible to really pinpoint exactly when things went wrong. But one of the uh, scholars and activists who I really refer to on this issue is Jack D. Forbes, who is an indigenous guy, Renape Lenape guy, who was, um, he, I think he was down in, based down in California for much of his life. And he wrote a number of books, including one called Columbus and Other Cannibals. And in that book, he talks about, uh, you know, the, the Wendigo or the Wetiko sickness, right? The, which I believe is an Anishinaabe. Um, if I'm not, not uh, incorrect, I might be. <laughs> but uh, apologies if I am. But he talks about this idea of, you know, a spirit that has an endless desire to consume. You know, that's never sated, that's never full, that's always hungry and can never stop eating. Um, and it's sort of the, the, the disease of greed, right? And he talks about, you know, the origin of this problem, colonialism, the destruction of the planet, the, 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 the loss of a, a real relationship and family kinship with the natural world, that it comes down to this, what he calls the wetiko sickness, and he describes it as being a spiritual illness with a physical vector. And so what he means is basically, you know, it's, a, it's contagious. Like it can be taught through television, through advertising, through patriarchal culture and religion and, you know, military indoctrination and boarding schools and all these different ways that people are inculcated into the worldview that, you know, that we have to keep taking and taking and taking. We can never have enough. We have to consume the world is a harsh, terrible place, and you better get what you can and get ahead while you can, because otherwise you're going to be, you know, left left by the wayside. And you know that stands in contrast to traditional peoples all over the world, you know, um, hmm. who who have a completely different conception, generally speaking, you know, of the natural world and of our place in it. As uh, you know, Vine Deloria talked about, like the beautiful symphony that we participate in uh, rather than sort of a nature red in tooth and claw. You know, he said like life is like a symphony that we all have to play our part. And if we don't play our right part, then the music won't sound right. It won't come out right. And uh, so I think that idea from Jack D. Forbes of the Wetiko Cygnus has something to it. And, you know, people talk about the beginning of agriculture, the beginning of Western civilization, you know, you can see these sort of cultures of empire arising throughout history all around the world who, you know, are imperialist and warlike against other human beings. And they're also very warlike against the natural world. Uh, you know, so we can go back and I think learn from the mistakes that have been made in the past, but, you know, then we get to the challenges of the current time we find in our, ourselves in now. And, and what to do about the situation we're in, which is, uh, I think, one of the most important questions we need to be asking. That's that's correct. Thank you for that. Uh, Wetico is um, it is this psychic pathogen that really forces um, 
the victims of uh, Wetiko, or we call it Washichu and Lakota, is uh, to f- to keep feeding something insatiable, as you say, and as if they were starving. And so that consumption mentality also looks for uh, an immediate remedy or a solution. But that solution seems to overwhelm um, the present situation, like you you look too too far too far forward to beyond what is what what do you have to work with now and you 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 wish for something you pray for something you put yourself in hopefulness of something better to take you out of this this uh hell that that this wedico has put you in and now we have a salvation point mentality we're looking for that without understanding what we are actually doing so when i think about that Loss of consciousness, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that this is our own worst enemy, that we don't understand what we are going through, so we tend to tether ourselves, even our questions about how to do something, as if someone is going to give us instruction, rather than go through the experience ourselves, even suffer or grieve, to, and, the cause of, and even the solution of cause and effect that we are going to reap the rewards because we've suffered now. Now we're waiting for the good times to arrive. But people, people don't understand that because of the consciousness or the loss of consciousness. And they're still dealing with conscience. If you know where I'm going, there's a, there's a right and wrong way or binary way that we are kind of programmed into this duality. Even so, a digital duality and reality of not doing anything, leaving it up to someone else to come and solve our problem. And uh, when we talk about, and you know that when we talk about saving the earth, it's not really about us saving the earth. It's because the earth is saving us anyway. It doesn't mean that we become passive passive people. We, we, we still have to do something without the doing that we're tethered to in the Western uh, mentality. Um, yeah. and, and so when I think about that, you know, what happens to the liberal left, the neoliberals? What happens to them? Because, yeah, we can point fingers at the far right. But it seems to me as an indigenous person, I see the same bird flying with the same logic. You know, someone's pointing fingers at somebody else and no one's really uh. flying the plane, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said, and it reminds me, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Linda Hogan, who's, uh, I think, one of the greatest writers I've ever read, who's uh, Chickasaw, and she, uh, one of her quotes that just has stuck with me so incredibly powerfully since the first time I read it was that uh, progress is like a god to people, and, uh, and uh, you know, I think that's just as true of the quote-unquote left in this country and in other places as it is of the right, you know, they, they, there's sort of this worship of progress. And, and one of the things you see, I think looking at history is that the only people who are able to survive and live in a good way and good relationship with the natural world, with, you know, all the other beings on this planet is uh, those people who can sort of create a, a circular culture and a circular worldview where they're not buying into that, sort of mythology of progress in which, uh, you know, progress for its own sake is sort of a God to people and they worship it and they're willing to sacrifice to it. You know, they're willing to literally make blood sacrifice to this God of progress 
they're willing to sacrifice mountains and rivers and forests and buffalo and, you know, their neighboring human communities. Uh, you know, anyone who gets in the way will be a blood sacrifice to their progress god. And that's a dangerous cult that's basically running things at this point. Uh, you know, no matter who's in power, in this country we've got the Democrats and the Republicans, and they're basically both fully on board with that sort of uh, progress mythology. And, uh, you know, with predictable results. Wow. It's a, you know, I just looked up at the clock. Time is out. Time is gone. And we've been talking for like 15, almost 20 minutes. And it, it seemed like we, we need to continue a conversation. But this will have to be in the future um, just to keep moving with what your generation is con- uh, conscious of. And I want to talk to you again sometime in the future. Would that be okay, Max? I'd love to come back on, Tiokasen. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Max. It's Max Wilbert is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide. We didn't even get into that, but uh, third-generation dissidents grew up on a Duwamish land out in Seattle and uh, the author of a, two books. One is called Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. I'm sure... He thought some of this when we were talking about it. And uh, thank you, Max, again for being here on First Voices Radio. And we'll see you next time. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
Corey Morin with Chosen Road. Thank you for that. Um, our next guest, our second guest here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and I'm going to guide you through this hour and, uh, of course, the second half hour. Uh, excuse me. Um, our guest is Christine and I, McCleave, and I'm going to attempt to say your second name here. Din DC, I hope I say that right, is of the Turtle Mountain Ojibwa, is the CEO of the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And she is a descendant of a boarding school survivors, a survivor, and Christine completed her master's thesis in Augsburg University on traditional Native American spirituality and Christianity and the impact of boarding schools on indigenous communities today. And Christine is a graduate of a mini MBA program at the University of St. Thomas, holds a bachelor's degree in communication studies from Northwestern College. So welcome back to First Voices Radio. Christine, it's great to speak with you once again. Bonjour. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really interested because the survivors of Indian boarding schools, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of people, I mean, who are still babies that don't even know they're they're being affected by what happened to uh, Native people over the last 100 plus years um, and how we still, in a sense, are receiving this care from those elders who have gone through that and the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition is doing something I think is is much needed, but it's part of our tradition. And would you, um, Christine, would you describe to us what this national boarding school uh, is all about, the, the Boarding School Survivors Association? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad to be back. I know we've um, talked before about the work that we're doing at the Boarding School Healing Coalition and um, it's really exciting to to revisit and reconnect 
and and kind of talk about the progress that we've been able to make. So last year in, in 2019, we um, received a planning grant and we were able to come together and make a 10-year strategic plan. And, you know, the funder was encouraging us to think big and then they funded the plan. And so we were heading into 2020 with, you know, a lot of really great plans. <laughs> and um, as we all know, 2020 did not go as planned. Um, but what's really kind of cool that came out of that, and, you know, I think a lot of us have experienced that this year where maybe it wasn't what we expected, but it might have been what we needed. And um, so one of the things that we did because we couldn't go out and gather with people and, and talk to boarding school survivors and descendants and, you know, come visit you in your communities. Um, we had to find a way to reach people um, with, you know, the pandemic and all the stay-at-home orders. And we were really, really concerned about our elders, about, um, you know, their safety. And um, I know we've all heard about, you know, the health disparities that were impacting our communities through covid um, really a continuation of, um, you know, all the historic trauma, all the oppression, all the systematic attempts at, you know, erasing us and, and removing us and oppressing us, um, all of those disparities around health, economics, education, all of those came into play um, during this pandemic. And so we wanted to, to send um, a care package to our boarding school survivors and descendants who were, <clears throat> who, excuse me, who were elders, right? So, um, so we came up with this program and we called it We Love You um, Elder Care Packages. And um, the reason we called it We Love You is because, as, as you may know, um, you know, being raised in a boarding school or, you know, being there for the majority of your young life, um, you might not have gotten to hear I love you as much from your parents or if they, particularly if they went to boarding school as well. I know in my family, um, you know, hearing I love you was something that we had to, to change the pattern on. My mom didn't hear it a lot when she was growing up because her parents went to boarding school. And so um, she actually ended up telling me I love you a lot. <laughs> so, um, but I know that she didn't hear it a lot. And so we wanted to let people know that we love you um, and that you don't have to do anything to deserve our love. We just love you and honor you for who you are and, and what you've experienced and, um, you know, really acknowledging our elders for their strength and resiliency. Um, so we, we put together these care packages with gifts from um, native, native entrepreneurs, native businesses, volunteers, everything in these care packages comes from native people. Um, we include a little bit of PPE. So there will be like some face masks and some hand sanitizer, um, but there's also some um, some healing medicines, you know, either sweetgrass or cedar, uh, depending on what region uh, we're sending this to you in, some sage. Um, also some goodies, you know, your package may have coffee or chocolate or um, some other things to brighten your day. Each package is unique and um, they're put together by volunteers from the Tulalip Tribes community. And Tulalip is in Washington State, the northwestern part of that, and beautiful country, beautiful uh, Puget Sound area. Um, mm -hmm. Christine, the um, the uh, what, 
you know, a few years ago, I was out here. Maybe I talked about it last last year with your interview. Is when when I uh, told people that yeah, we have a lot of people that went through boarding school, and many, and I told them, well, that these these are the consequences that we've had as Native people because of the boarding school. And many people kind of gave me that quizzical, you know, look. And one actually, <laughs> a person with a PhD, actually came to me and says, Tilkson, if, if you were so poor, how, how could you afford to go to boarding school? Mm. And that was their idea. That's how much we haven't or they haven't understood what we are still going through at those times. And when I think about that, well, is that just a regionalism? Is that because of privilege? Is that because people just don't want to know about Native people? But yet, uh, we're still we're still doing this. We're still still here, and as long as we are here, I think that stereotype of who we aren't is going to continue. So you know, I'm commending you in, in doing this. How much? Um, how much of this? Um, I don't know, I could go into other parts where the trauma um, to live. And, and actually, I, I was really touched by something I read about um, this, this, this boarding school survivor who said something about he didn't expect anything. And he grew up because of boarding school, not expecting to expecting it from someone else. That it, and what I got out of that is that he became very much an individual who didn't need help. Um, because no one helped him. And then when you reminded me that Native people who went going through the boarding school experience were not told, were not hugged, were not given, you know, were not told I love you or any kind of even that skill. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the effects, as as you know. And, and um, when when you go out to these remote parts of the country, these care packages may be going to, you know, I think that's another realization that we are still in those remote parts of this land that we originate from. Um, and I'm wondering, is that true? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I believe we'll have more information when we get our census numbers, because I, I know that our people really put out the effort for us to participate in the census for accurate tracking and, you know, um, funding and appropriations. But We know that there's a lot of people that live in um, urban areas, you know, due to relocation programs and things like that. But absolutely, we're still occupying our homelands in many cases or the uh, lands that we were relocated to or exiled into um, where we established reservation lands. So um, these packages absolutely are going out to people all over the country, all over um, you know, the United States, some in Alaska, um, you know, some down in the Southwest. We've got folks who've requested them from Oklahoma and, of course, the Plains and the Midwest. Um, so, yeah, they're going to every uh, part of the country. And, and this is a program for um, boarding school survivors and descendants who are over age 60 and who um, are in the United States. So, unfortunately, you know, because of our uh, our mission, we are focused on boarding schools in the United States. And we know that our relatives um, up in Canada, you know, had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and a process that, you know, they went through with the Canadian government. Um, you know, not perfect, but, you know, at least at least their government acknowledged it and ours has not. So 
Um, so we are focused on, you know, people in the United States. And um, to that effect, you know, we actually did see some progress this year. Um, I think a lot of the conversations that are happening around the country around, you know, racial equity and racism and Black Lives Matter, um, Congresswoman Deborah Halland actually introduced a bill in September uh, for a Truth and Healing Commission. And um, we were able to, you know, provide some input for her uh, and her staff when they were writing that bill. And we suggested it not be called Truth and Reconciliation because we do know from our relatives in Canada that, um, you know, reconciliation has not played out the way they thought it would. (laughs) And that, you know, the government uh, has continued to violate their human rights and their Indigenous rights. And so there was a hashtag trending last um, spring that was, you know, and last year, reconciliation is dead. So we, we thought it should really focus on healing and justice before we can get to that reconciliation piece. Um, so that's huge progress. But, you know, this is the first bill of its kind to ever be introduced um, into Congress in, in this country that would, um, if this commission is established, it would acknowledge this policy that was basically, you know, to genocide us, whether it's cultural genocide or just outright genocide. Um, but back to the care packages, if people want to request one, um, we we put together a thousand packages and we're about halfway through. So we still have, um, you know, many care packages that we can send. And you can go to our website at boardingschoolhealing.org and you'll see it right there on the homepage. Um, you can request an elder care package there. And um, if you want to sponsor a care package, you can go to boardingschoolhealing.org forward slash we love you. And this is very important. Important, and I'm, I know that the majority of the people we talk to are non-native people, and a lot of the people that are not recognized by the federal government are probably coming up with some kind of question: Am I eligible? Or is my grandma eligible? Um, even though we're not enrolled, is is that is there a stipulation there somewhere, Christine? You know, we don't ask um, for you know. Um, your enrollment number or, you know, we do ask, let's see, I'm looking, we do ask tribal affiliation, which, you know, can be loosely interpreted. But basically, the only requirement is, number one, you have to be over 60 years of age. So you can request this on someone's behalf, but whoever is receiving the package needs to be an elder. So we determined, you know, 60 years of age was um, a good place to to say that made you an elder. Um and then you have to have actually attended a boarding school or your parents attended a boarding school. So a direct descendant. And those are the, the words that we use on the website. So um, if you are over 60 and you attended a boarding school, you know, it, it doesn't matter if, um, well, I suppose you would probably be enrolled, but, um, you know, we don't, we don't ask that question. We just ask your tribal affiliation, and we ask um, what boarding school you attended. We want to know a little bit about um, those pieces of information. And then if, it's, uh, if you're a direct descendant, uh, it's the same thing. We ask your tribal affiliation, and then um, you, know, you can identify as a direct descendant, so your parent or guardian attended a boarding school, and then we ask you about what boarding school they attended. This is an incredible program. Um, thanks for readjusting your original grant of 10-year plans to come up with something that is actually 
you know, moving. And, and when I thought, thought about this, like, okay, what, what is Christine doing? What is, what happened to that plan? And, and when I think about it, it's the care package is not just to me, just to, to, you know, I don't know, feed somebody, but it's also to take care. And as, as you put it, um, you said something, our elders carry ir- irreplaceable wisdom, ancestral teachings, and traditional languages from their homelands. And when mm-hmm. I think about what the call is now on reservations in every place in, in native country is that the, the youth are stepping forward and because they're seeing the treasurers of the wisdom, the teachings and the languages disappear. And and now they're they're actually doing something on each reservation I go to. They are actually trying to take care of the elders, which which almost comes automatically. And I think that's what we are doing. I think that's what you are doing with the the NABS, uh, the National Association of Boarding Schools. And it's commendable. I thank you for for being here, Christine. Um, I wonder if there's anything else that I have missed. No, and, and yeah, I, I hope that's what we're doing. You know, we're um, focused on not only acknowledging this history and how it's impacted us and how it shows up in our lives and our families and our communities, you know, healing that, that intergenerational and that historical trauma, but we're also trying to inspire people, right, to say, we are so resilient. They tried to genocide us, and we're still here. And that resilience is a source of strength and hope. And so honoring our elders who experience boarding school or who are direct descendants is a way to do that. And um, because we couldn't have our annual conference in person this year, we actually hosted um, a virtual healing summit, and that was just two weeks ago. And um, if you weren't able to attend, we will be sharing portions of it on our website um, through our YouTube channel, um, because we really did have a powerful gathering, albeit virtual, <laughs> um, where we came together and in the morning we heard from a panel of boarding school survivors. And so that was the portion um, where, you know, the, the, the theme of the virtual summit was healing narratives past, present, and future. So in the morning we honored those memories and we honored those experiences. And then in the afternoon we looked forward and we heard from both youth and elders who are, you know, activists in their communities doing different types of work to, to uplift their community, to make their lives better for their family and, um, and those around them. And um, that one was, that panel was called Healing for the Next Seven Generations. So really looking at the strength of our people and the strength of our spirit and the strength of our ancestors. And so we hope that, you know, if somebody requests this package, that they, that they feel that. Um, another thing that we've done to help educate people, um, particularly non-natives, but um, I think even Native people can get something out of it, is we have just launched a truth and healing curriculum around Indian boarding schools. And it's on our website, uh, on our education page, and it's free. And it was also a response to um, the year we've had with the pandemic, where a lot of parents are dealing with um, basically homeschooling their children (laughs) through distance learning. I'm one of them. I have a second grader. And um, so I'm, you know, playing teacher here during the day as well. And so it's the curriculum is designed for either a teacher or a parent to use. 
and it's divided into three different age groups, so grade schoolers, middle schoolers, and high schoolers. And um, we really hope that, you know, a lot of people will incorporate that and, and learn more about this history. When I go home to the reservation, I listen to my mother, who is a survivor, and uh, nine of her, no, excuse me, ten of her, her years in the educational system of the West is that the stories that she would tell me after many decades and just mesmerizing how they survived. Yeah, I can listen to the tragedy, but it was the energy of the ancestors, her ancestors. And now that same energy, is as you are recognizing, is in the younger generations. And I I commend you again for this. So thank you, um, Christine, for being here on First Voices Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to reconnecting with you from time to time. This is fun. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. It's an honor. And that's Christine McCleave, who is of the Turtle Mountain Ojibwa. And uh, yes, dealing with COVID-19 pandemic and working hard as usual. And, and this is an example of what we could do, as you know, all people who are listening to this episode of First Voices Radio like to thank her again for being here on First Voices Radio. And uh, we have a few minutes left, and I'm going to just kind of refer to some music that I've been wanting to play. I don't understand the game Oh, who 
Michael Kiwanuka with Rule the World. And this last song is Cold by Chris Stapleton from the album Starting Over. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices. My name is Teo Kasing, Ghost Horse. Till the way you broke my heart 
I build my life. 